Welcome to the Teach Strong podcast. My name's Sam Hart. I'm a primary school teacher on a mission to help you discover truly effective approaches to well-being. And this podcast is a platform for me to bring you the knowledge and experience of real experts who can break down the research and the tools that you can apply every day to help you feel happier and healthier. My guest today is Dr. Ray Owen. Ray is a consultant clinical psychologist and health psychologist with over 30 years experience of working in the NHS. He's also the author of two self-help books, Facing the Storm and Living with the Enemy. Books about using cognitive behavioural therapy, mindfulness and acceptance to navigate life's toughest challenges. And I've invited Ray on the show to talk about grief. During our conversation, we discuss the different models of the process of grief, expectations around grief, the parallels in grieving between death and the end of a relationship, the role of CBT, acceptance and mindfulness in grief, and how you can support others who are grieving. I hope you find the conversation useful. So, Ray, the the five stages of grief, is this myth Mm. or reality? Is there any truth to it? Oh, there's definitely some truth to it, um, Sam. So, um, the, you know, the five stages of, of, of grief actually weren't originally written about grief. They were written about adjustment to actually a diagnosis of a terminal illness um, and was subsequently applied to grief. Uh, but the name that's originally attached to it is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who's an amazing woman. Um, and she was one of the first people in a more scientific tradition to be trying to make sense of uh, of what's going on in grieving, um, and you know she kind of so she her observations of people tend you know looking like they go through certain stages, yeah you know, they're good observations, and when you spend a lot of time around people grieving, you will see people who are in shock, and you'll see people who are kind of like raging against the world. You'll see people who are really kind of down and low. Um, that's kind of not the issue with it. The issue is that. In grief, as in lots of human behaviour, there's very, very few universals. Mm. Um, people will sort of may show some of them, they may show all of them, they won't necessarily show them in that order. Um, and and although she was very careful, if you actually nobody ever reads the original, this is the problem. If you go back and read the original, she was very cautious about this. She was very aware of some of these issues, and yet as soon as you start talking about stages, it kind of puts a norm on it. Uh, such that people ought to go through these stages. And if they're not, mm. then there's something kind of wrong. And that's the key difficulty with it. Um, that, you know, not that the individual observations aren't very true of some and maybe lots of people, but it's a poor description of how people are in general. And it tends to then play into people reacting in certain ways and having certain expectations. And when they themselves or the people there with and trying to help don't fit the pattern, people can sort of panic unnecessarily. And I've certainly had referrals as a, you know, as a practicing clinical psychologist uh, based on assumptions about where people ought to be with their grief mm. and, and where they're not. Yeah. And how many different aspects of lifestyle could that be applied to, you know, where you know, the, the expectations where I should be and how I should be getting along. And then also that kind of linear aspect, I suppose when I first heard about the five stages of grief many years ago Mm. i would have thought well that makes sense and you would go through these stages and like many other things oh yeah stages kind of they they appeal to our brains i suppose don't i don't they you know moving through those steps but like so many things it's not linear is it's not we're never going to just follow that direct path there's going to be ups and downs and ebbs and flows absolutely absolutely and um and I mean, one of the things that's, that's kind of interesting is one of the, you know, the five stages things are kind of a model of grief. And, you know, we use mm. models in different ways, don't we? we? Use models as a way to describe things, as a way of trying to predict things. That's where this one gets into trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a basis of trying to be helpful and not to do next. Um, and interestingly, one of the thing, one of the models that I think has probably far more widespread acceptance amongst people who are working with grief a lot is something that's called, very uh, unsexily called the dual process model mm, okay. of grief. Um, 
And the dual process model of grief almost like comes in with one of those problems that uh, that we just noticed with the with, with the five stages. Um, and and that's the thing I've heard time and again from people, which is, you know, normally starts off with the words, I think I'm going mad. Uh, because like a one moment, I'm completely on top of things. I'm, you know, it, it, having been sort of uh, uh, lost somebody very important to them. You know, I'm sorting out the bank accounts. I'm, I'm setting up uh, how we're going to look after the kids now. Uh, and I'm completely on top of it. And then the next minute, I'm a complete wreck. Mm. And then five minutes later, I'm sort of assertively managing a conversation with a solicitor who's been awkward about something. And it feels like I'm going mad. And part of the it feels like I'm going mad is about uh, defying an expectation that is implicit in that stages model. That of course you get to the point where you're on top of it, but you're only meant to get to that. It feels like you're only meant to get to that point when you've carefully gone through all those stages. Mm. Whereas actually, people's real experience is this stuff happens within a day, within an hour. You can be doing one thing, doing another. And so this, this model that I mentioned briefly, the dual process model, uh, sometimes kind of called the pendulum or swing model, says exactly this. We swing between what you could describe as two big clusters of stuff, stuff that's about the loss itself. So that's sort of thinking about the person who's died, uh, reflecting on stuff, replaying the last moments, looking through your photo albums, being in floods of tears, wondering what's left for you in this world, and what we call kind of restoration stuff. So kind of building the new stuff that you need to build. And we do swing between. Now, it might be over time. There's differences in how much time we spend in those two uh orientations will be the kind of the jargon the um how much time you spend on the loss and the, and, and the restoration um but all the time we are kind of like swinging backwards and forwards and that's to be expected that's natural normal healthy grieving not you going mad because you're not going through these linear five stages oh that's so interesting the dual process model interesting and so would that kind of would that apply to kind of like the feeling okay and 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 laughing and and meeting up with people and, and feeling fine, but then also a minute, an hour, a day later, you you, you are back to that grieving and, and feeling really down and thinking about Abs- that person. Like, absolutely, right. that, that's that, that's spot on, Sam. That's the uh, that as I say, that's where you know again in working with people, this this is one of those things that you know, you don't explain models for the sake of explaining them. You don't need to mm-hmm. talk about this stuff. It's helping a person get their head around their experience. Um, but, you know, my experience is that people get this instantly and say, yeah, that's how it is. Mm. That, that's kind of exactly how it is for me. Because it is those sort of ups and downs, but it's not simply ups and downs in terms of where's your mood at. Mm. Much more importantly, it's kind of where's your head at mm. in terms of the lost stuff and the, uh, and the restoration. Um, I mean, look, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of caveat to put on all of this stuff. Um, that a lot of the sort of scientific healthcare research on grief, we've also got to remember it has come about in fairly specific cultural settings. So you're largely in sort of white Western European and American um, settings. And so, you know, there may be some threads that are kind of, we can talk about more universally here, but you, you know, you got, you, you, you got to have more than a pinch of humility with this, that this is how it is for some people. And that's not necessarily how it is for lots of people or, or the majority in the world, maybe. And working in a setting where we're coming across quite a lot of people who are from that cultural background, it's still useful to know some of this stuff. So long as we retain a curiosity and a humility. Um, about people's experience and if their experience is different to our expectation it may well be our expectation that's wrong Mm. not their experience that's weird yeah yeah interesting because i i I mean i guess is that you know in more eastern cultures or perhaps other cultures around the world where death is more around uh, around those people more and and it's perhaps talked about more um and uh, in the home and, and things like that 
And whereas yeah. we perhaps, I don't know, do we brush it under the carpet, try not to talk about it? And, and I know I've heard this, I can't remember who who said it first, but something about comparing now with the Victorian times. You know, in the Victorian times, they didn't talk about sex, but they talked about death and death was everywhere. And now it's the, the, <laughs> the other way around. It's now the way around. Sex is everywhere, yeah, and, and, and death is kind of hidden. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And look, you know, and, and with, you know, I'm not going to say our culture, if I talk about my cultural background, which is, you know, if for any one person, if you actually kind of drill down, everybody's history is mm. is unique if you're looking for enough detail. You know, but if I look at as somebody who, who grew up in, you know, uh, in England, a white working class background, this, 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 um, even within that, you know, we should be very hesitant about overgeneralizing. Mm-hmm. Could be two people in two houses next to each other who have very different ideas about how to approach this, uh, and yet it is still worth stepping back and saying the kind of our attempts in a more sort of scientific, researchy way to get our heads around what's going on with grief. Um, it's worth noting we did those in certain settings, mm-hmm. and actually the other thing is uh, is, is is gender. Um, an awful lot of the research is done with women. Right. Um, uh, and we could, you know, we could put out reasons why that might be, um, that, uh, you know, again, within our, um, with our society, uh, you know, men tend to die slightly younger. So there are more, uh, in later life, there are more bereaved women around than bereaved men. Mm. Um, and also women are, you know, for whatever reason, and that's another whole podcast, mm-hmm. probably with a different specialism to me, uh, women are more likely to access some of these services mm. than men are. Uh, and therefore, when you say, "By the way, we're doing some research. Would you be interested in help?" Pin. It's not. It's not a, a statistically normative sample yeah. that you're uh, that you're gathering from. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, could we maybe go back a little step and and talk about? the definition of grief you know what do we mean mm. when we talk about gr- grief and this could be quite brief uh, that's up to you but but what is <laughs> that's unlikely you're asking a psychologist come on <laughs> true, true. <laughs> take as long as you like <laughs> um, but yeah w- what is grief and and how is it different to depression but perhaps as well. yeah really salient questions mm. um and I mean, you, and you asked initially about like the definition, and that's uh, and that's um, I think that's the right way in mm. because defining something is, is, is a human behaviour, but right? is, is is an act of sense making, mm. and the sense I make around that word grief or grieving may well be slightly different to the sense you make or another person. That and 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 yeah, I don't kind of want to get too much into the philosophy of this, but. But there isn't a thing in us to grief, right? You could build the best CT scanner in the world. You're not going to find grief. Grief is a word that we use to kind of point at a certain area of human existence. And it's a certain, and that area of human existence is something around people losing stuff that matters to them and what that does to them and what they need to do next. So it's that's the territory that we're in. We can have a more precise definition, and particularly if you're involved in research and stuff, sometimes we have to nail it sharper than that. But in everyday speech, it's enough to say those words point to this area of stuff. So it's obvious we talk about this stuff. We're not talking about like recipes for fruit salad. We're talking about people losing stuff and adapting to it. So we can say things like, well, grief or grieving is, is adjustment to significant loss including the emotional impact of that significant loss. Mm. And that's, I guess, in practice, how I would tend to think of it, as having almost sort of those two separate components of, of the loss with its emotional impact and the how do I adjust my life around that loss. And that loss, which I kind of keep referring to, you know, this is the other thing that we just need to look a little bit more carefully at because typically when we talk about grief, it's easiest to go to uh, the loss of a person we love, you know, a partner, parent, child, close friend. But of course, all of the same stuff applies to other sorts of losses as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the most obvious, I guess, and the, the closest parallel is loss of a pet. 
you know, uh, which can have a very, very similar emotional uh, impact and similar implications for people having to sort of do things a bit differently in their lives afterwards. You've got to remember that for some people, their relationship with their pet not only lasts quite a long time, for some people, it's the most successful emotional relationship they'll ever have. So why wouldn't they be devastated by the loss of the kind of one person who appears to understand them? Um, and, you know, never abuses them and, and whatever, whatever. Um, but we've got to kind of spread out from that because, of course, there's also loss of health, loss of a limb, loss of uh, function. You know, say a person becomes blind, you know, the loss of sight. We could still talk about there being a grieving component for that. Um, and things like sort of dislocation, you know, loss of when we move away and lose a network of friends and a, and a network of familiar things around us or retire from a job. That's, there's a, there is, it's perfectly reasonable to talk about grieving in that context. Uh, and what I always kind of want to put at the end of that is some people suffer multiple losses at the same time. Mm. Um, and I suppose one of the clearest examples that always comes to my mind is refugees. So if you think, you know, people, particularly if the refugees say from a war zone, they may have had people very close to them, perhaps multiple people who died. And then they've had to leave a place they grew up, now find themselves where their language perhaps isn't so much spoken, cultural assumptions are different, people aren't treating them so well, uh, and lots of their assumptions and safeties are lost. So we need also to just keep an eye on where the losses are multiple. And sometimes it's not it's not the thing you expect is going to be mm. the worst bit of it. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine those, those multiple aspects all happening at once. It just must I can't, be I can't horrific. Either. Yeah, mm. but then you you kind of explaining those different situations where one might be grieving. I think that perhaps could offer comfort to someone that is listening if they are maybe thinking I shouldn't be grieving over this. What you know, people have it worse than me. Um, this isn't too bad. Um, Oh, yeah, I, I should. Yeah, I shouldn't be feeling like this. Perhaps that offers some comfort. Yeah. Like I understand that I, there's a whole absolutely. myriad, isn't there? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and uh, and that others have it worse than me. Occasionally serves a positive function to people. Mm. You know, it can occasionally help them. But you're right; it can also be um, be really unhelpful. And 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 to be frank, the, even the logic of it doesn't hold. I mean, yes, it is literally true. But if we played that through, then everybody has somebody who's worse off. Until yeah. you get to the end of the line, there's one, one poor person somewhere in, I don't know, Syria somewhere, mm. who has the worst life in the world. And nobody else should ever be bothered by anything that happens to them. And, and that just doesn't work, does it? No, no, it's all relative, isn't it? And so what about, if you, if you don't mind me coming back to that comparison with de depression, is it, worth, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, is, it, is it worth mentioning that or shall, shall I move on with my next question? Well, it is. It, is. Uh, it might link through to, to, to other questions that we have because, mm. um, and, and again, a little bit of it comes back to that same thing I said before. You know, you're never going to look inside a brain and find grief. It's, there's not a thingness to it. It is mm. a useful way of describing certain processes and certain states a person may be in. Now, some people would hold a different opinion to what I'm going to express, but a lot yeah. of people would hold the same opinion, which is the same as true depression. You're not going to look inside a person's brain and find depression. There is no mm. blood test for depression. Mm. There is, you know, it's not that kind of a thing. It's a real and debilitating and life-altering and sometimes life-ending experience for some people, but it's not a thing. Mm. So saying, is this thing the same as this thing? It isn't perhaps so much the question as what are people experiencing? Mm. We tend to use the word depression often when uh, the uh, often when there isn't an identifiable loss. We use it when uh, people when the the, the sort of the uh, emotional reaction to what's going on for a person is either yes doesn't appear to have a particular trigger or appears the the level of emotional reaction seems to us to be stronger or more long-lasting than we'd expected. Particularly, we use that phrase when certain other things go with it. So um, things like uh, reduced energy, reduced motivation, certain sort of biological changes go on, sleep intrusion. But, you know, I think 
some of what's behind your question is, yeah, get all of those with, uh, with grief as well. Mm-hmm. Very often depression, what you also get is a very wide sense of hopelessness and helplessness and sometimes kind of a quite a negative view of yourself. Of course you can get that with grief, but it seems to kind of be more intense in those situations that people end up labeling as, as depression. Right. With all of these things, whether we're talking about grief or we're talking about depression, it isn't so much what um, presentations, what behaviours person is showing. It's far more what's the implications of it for this person in this situation. Mm. You know, so to feel down and sad and tearful, whether we're attributing that to the grief or we're saying there's depression in addition to it, isn't really the key point. If for instance, a person was, you know, was seriously thinking about ending their own life. That's the thing we, they're going to need some extra support with and we're going to need to intervene with without, um, uh, without us, most of us having to spend too much time trying to divide and allocate things between. It's very much the same with, with, with depression, particularly kind of early on, full in your face, uh, uh, not depression, sorry, uh, grief. Um, you know, one of the, one of the characteristics of grief is kind of anything goes particularly early on mm. it can present in so many different ways uh, and one of them is is kind of self-neglect you know people sort of for a little while it's kind of almost part of a stereotype of it they don't kind of look after themselves as much and they don't mm. you know none of it seems that important or they're very preoccupied or they're very tearful they don't have an appetite and uh, you know and the example i'd often give is okay so if um so it's not unusual for people not really take much interest in food. You know, if I was in that position and I didn't eat at all for a week, um, I mean, you know, if I was standing up, it'd be particularly obvious to you, that would probably do me no harm. You know, it might actually be good for my health. Mm-hmm. wouldn't do me any harm. But if I was to say I was an insulin-dependent by diabetic, mm. well, me not eating for a week would probably be fatal. So the same sort of manifestation, if you want, it's not whether it is intrinsically right, wrong, healthy, unhealthy. It's what the consequences are for this individual in their context that determines how much we need to support them, how much we need to help, how much we might even need to intervene. Right, right. And I guess surely this points to the fact why it's so vital that some people get professional help, I guess, if, if needed, because there's not, um, you know, this one size fits all approach that this has happened in my life. So this is how I'm going to deal with it. There are just so many aspects to p- different people's lives and perhaps working yeah. with someone like you, you know, that's how that's, is that where you can kind of have the biggest impact because you can understand that person and, and really help them? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, look, you know, first principles, you know, uh, grief is a nearly universal human experience. If we're lucky enough to live long enough to have anything important in our life, you know, so out of early childhood, mm. then the overwhelming chance is at some point we will lose something that really matters to us, uh, unless we die very young. Um, in which case, for, that means that that we will experience grief. Mm. So, you know, um, um, you know, Freud said, uh, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't agree with Freud on many of his explanations of things, but his <laughs> observation was, grief is the price we pay for loving someone. Mm-hmm. so at some point we will experience grief so one of the consequences of that is that doesn't mean all humans need to see some super specialist therapy type person um, but the support of people who are grieving is is a whole society enterprise and always has been societies across the world and across history have known the most important thing for a bereaved person are things like expressions of companionship practical support, involvement in culturally significant rituals, whatever that is for you. Mm. Um, and that's not necessarily even a, a specifically religious ritual. Um, you know, raising a glass to someone, yeah. uh, tying flowers to a lamppost where there's been a car accident. We, we constantly invent new rituals that are meaningful to us. They're important. So it's doing those things. Practical help, you know, bringing food around, helping them out. Offering companionship, but allowing time alone. So, you know, this gets, all cultures discover this. And, th- and that's the really important stuff. And for a smaller proportion of people, they get kind of stuck. 
or the implications are more significant in terms of their self-care, you know, kind of crawling inside a vodka bottle as a, as a response to it is completely understandable and will have escalating costs for the person. So there may be some people for whom the consequences of a perfectly normal uh, grief response is actually, um, they need a bit more help with that. And then fortunately, there's a whole range of people who might be really useful from just a listening ear to a tiny percentage of people who might need somebody like me. So communities offer this, being a neighbour, being a friend, Um, churches, social groups, and then if we look at places like hospices that offer skilled bereavement support, skilled counsellors, mm. the big counselling organisations. So fortunately, there's all sorts of tiers and levels of help potentially available mm. if people are able to access it, yeah. both through availability, and we know how difficult it is to provide things in this society at the moment, uh, but also sometimes if people feel able to reach out and that's sometimes a an issue yeah yeah i mean you, you mentioned before sam that um that bit about um other people are worse off than me i think that i think that's one of the inhibitions mm. sometimes there is outright shame uh about not coping the other really interesting thing is um we, we in my particular kind of approach to psychology uh, we have a saying that we compare our insides to other people's outsides Right, so yeah. I see the person next door whose partner died, you know, a couple of months ago, and 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 they're kind of well dressed and they're going out and they're doing stuff, and I know that I'm feeling absolutely wretched inside because I can see my insides and I can feel how wretched I feel, and they look like they're doing all right. I don't see them at two o'clock in the morning, sort of sobbing into the duvet. Mm. Uh, and I don't see what's going through their head, and I don't see what's so. So we, we tend to make comparisons, but we make comparisons which we often kind of come off worse, and that makes us think that there's something wrong with us for feeling yeah. this way. Plus, which, and again, yeah, you know, I'm making a, a cultural overgeneralization, and here I'm going to go and do it. Um, what contemporary Western European culture tends to treat feeling bad as being wrong and, and f- uncomfortable feelings as being signs of something's wrong and we need to move away from that and we need to yeah. fix it. And quickly as well. You've got to move away quickly. from that quickly. Move it away from it quickly. And if you're still feeling it, something's wrong. Um, and grief is a great example of why that's uh, massively counterproductive because mm. you will feel bad. And all the things you could do to temporarily not feel bad will make things worse. Are probably not good for you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Oh man, it's such a, it's such a, I, I don't know, a heartbreaking topic. But then some of the things that you mentioned earlier, I just think are, are so like profound and beautiful to hear about the the community, the coming around people, the um, offering practical support, the rituals. Can I ask a quick question about the rituals? Like, is that useful? Then these these rituals that we've decided upon, they're useful, are they? Or is that hard to say? I'm, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to give that, that annoying and yet completely accurate answer, which is it depends. Um, I, having ritual, see, I say, seems to keep getting reinvented. Mm. Um, and that suggests there may be a function to it. Uh, there may be there may be useful purpose, and we know that when people are for one reason or another denied access to sort of rituals they would expect, this things seem to be harder for them. Right. So, I mean, a great example here is um, is what's sometimes called disenfranchised grief. Uh, now, disenfranchised grief is kind of where you're grieving, but somehow you're not allowed to grieve. Um, so the, I guess one of the kind of classic examples of that, uh, uh, earlier in my career, working in a particular setting I did, which was in a, an HIV and AIDS unit in the uh, uh, early to mid-90s, um, what we used to see a lot was uh, young, often gay people who died of, of AIDS and their partners who loved them very much and had looked after them in their latter stage of their life through to their death often then being forbidden from attending funerals. 
uh, and weren't allowed the grief. The grief was all belonged to the parent and the siblings. The, the, the grief, and and that's I guess a fairly stark example. Mm. But there are subtler examples of it all the time of who's allowed to grieve and who's not. Um, so, this, so there are people not being allowed to attend um, funerals, and also. I mean, there is an argument that as some of the traditional rituals become less common, you know, it's rare there's, I say, a full-on um, requiem mass. Mm. So these days, like anybody who's actually been to a full-on requiem mass will understand that, you know, unless you're really into that, it's quite a big thing to be to, to do. Um, as I said before, these kind of like modern versions of rituals uh, fascinate me that we that you know flowers on a lamppost, release of balloons. Mm. Um, and it was very interesting that a colleague of mine who set up a, a major bereavement charity for children called Winston's Wish, and if people are interested in children affected by grief, and, and, and I guess a lot of the people who will be listening to your podcast, some will be, if they haven't already heard of Winston's Wish, it's well worth going online for all their resources on there. Okay. Um because they, yeah, and one of the things they did was they 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 were doing sort of group support things for bereaved kids, and they had to sit down and think, we want rituals, but we don't want them to have pre-existing um, religious connotations. You know, it can't be a particularly Christian or particularly Muslim or particularly Jewish ritual because it's for all kids. But we still want things that are meaningful and, and emotional and allow strong emotion to be present in the room. Um, and so, you know, they did a few things. They did like, you know, they, they did a bit with release of balloons uh, and they also did a, a, a kind of a candle ritual, mm-hmm. a sort of a lighting of everybody lighting a candle and then whenever they felt ready, blowing out that candle. Um, and, you know, even talking about it, I noticed a, a lump in my throat mm-hmm. and, and to be present at it is a hugely emotional thing with, you know, when it's kids that are grieving and in, and in bits. And yet one of the things about... Um, the societal message that it, it's wrong to have unhappy uh, feelings is that sometimes there's a kind of pressure on kids to be okay mm. in a particular way in not express their emotion. Adults find it very difficult to be around kids expressing strong emotion. Like t- talking, I'm guessing to quite a lot of teachers. So yeah, I'm teaching <laughs> suck eggs here, but you know that very often kids' expression of genuine, deep, heartfelt distress is kind of shut down by wider society. Mm-hmm. And they're told to cheer up and all that kind of stuff. And, and this is a situation where we can't do that. I, I, I mustn't. Mm. Oh, it's really good to hear, yeah. Uh, allowing people to, I guess, express it in the way that is right for them. Is that right? Kind of. Yeah, right. and allow it to have it. You know, the, right. because, because the difficulty is that we, and no, this isn't just about kids now, this is about everybody. The mm-hmm. idea can be that... Um, that to feel the pain of grief mm. is kind of the opposite of, is incompatible with a, a sort of a loving and fulfilling life. And it's only once you've got rid of that, you can have this loving and fulfilling life. And it's actually the recognition that experiencing the pain of grief is part of a loving and fulfilling life. Mm. But, you know, the grief is part of the loving. The grief is not a separate unwanted side effect of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, that, and, and that's a way of incorporating experience given that grief will be i'd argue grief for somebody you've loved particularly uh is is lifelong mm. it doesn't go it forms a different part of your life as time goes on the form of it shifts somewhat and, and hopefully a new life is built around it but it's still a part of you yeah um and so the ability to accept the presence of some sadness that might not be as in your face every day as it is in the first however long few months, but will still show up at some times. And that's not a problem. That's there to be kind of sat with and made room for. Yeah. I love that. I think that's that's an, an important um, thing to say. Yeah, It's not like we cross the finish line, I suppose, of it and, and then we're done with it. <laughs> yeah, like um, I'd like to talk about if you don't mind the the two instances of grief i think i mean earlier in the conversation you you mentioned all the different scenarios if that's the right word where um someone might be grieving 
Yeah. I guess I was going to ask in particular about um, the the differences or the similarities between death and the ending of a meaningful relationship. You know, it could be romantic or it could be a, a friendship or, or whatever it is. But so that that person hasn't passed away, but that relationship has ended. So of course that that mm-hmm. could be a divorce, couldn't it? It could be just a, a partner that you've been with for a long time and that's ended. Um, because I suppose you one grieves in that respect, don't they? And they can have all of those feelings around it: um, regret, shame, longing for that person that you think you'll probably never get. Well, likely is you're you're not going to see them again or or, or have that relationship that mm. you had. Um, so I don't I don't know if you, uh, that's that's very open and broad. But is yeah. there anything you could you could speak to about <laughs> that? similarities, differences? Uh, if, well. Because we have talked about death, haven't we? But but maybe there are people that are thinking about grief and have been through the ending of a relationship recently, or perhaps not even recently. Um, but they might like to hear your take on yeah. that. That's all right, Ray. Well, I think, uh, I, you know, you, I absolutely agree with you, Sam. You know, many of the same things can be said. And some of the things that we might bring to bear to help us both understand and support others and support ourselves with classic, you know, grief through bereavement, uh, absolutely are also present in other kinds of loss, either already experienced or, or anticipatory. Um, mm. uh, and and absolutely, I mean, to the extent that my um, a lot of my work in life has been dealing with, you know, my, my, my experience of working with people in grief has actually come secondary to the fact that most of my life I've been a clinical psychologist working with people with cancer and other sort of life-limiting or life-ending illnesses. So um, I actually spend a lot of time with people either preparing for their own death or preparing for the death of a loved one and then maybe seeing beyond. And the parallels are so are, are so significant that um, um, actually uh, I ended up writing a book about it. So I will plug mm-hmm. that shamelessly. I'll, I'll put that in the, uh, in the post-podcast uh, uh, follow-up material. So I wrote a book called Facing the Storm, which is based on the work we do, not just psychologists, but the, the team does in palliative care, helping people face their own, the prospect of their own death. Um, and look at the parallels to facing the prospect of a relationship breaking down or being made redundant mm. or uh, even going to prison. Um, and actually the similarities in some of the things we can bring to bear of facing things that we know are, are Look, bottom line is this is awful stuff. Really bad stuff happens in people's lives. And that's the thing we can't necessarily change. There are still choices that we have that might make this more bearable and might make us more able to live, you know, reasonably fulfilling lives in, in, the, in pursuits of our values for as long as we can and be able to, if we're around for the aftermath, deal with the aftermath of it. Uh, so going back to the relationship stuff, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, recognizing what's important in the relationship, allowing room for the grieving, mm. and um, why, and recognizing there is a new life to be built. Knowing that you don't—it's probably a mistake to rush forward too fast, but it's not going to be that linear thing. You know, we've talked about stages before. The, the two are probably going to go slightly slightly hand in hand. There's another actually really interesting parallel specifically with that one. Um, we know we know a lot about the kind of things that tend to make for a more difficult grief response for bereavement. Right? And, and, and they're not always what you think. So we know the stuff about the person who died, the stuff about the relationship. And it's easy to think, you know, the couple who've been together for 60 years are utterly devoted to each other, and then one partner dies, the surviving partner has just going to be the worst because they've lost the best person in their life. And I'm sure it will be really hard. And sometimes it's particularly hard early on. Hmm. Often those people seem to cope somewhat better in the longer term. The people who cope less well are the ones who had a deeply ambivalent relationship with the person who died. So had a kind of love-hate relationship or they, you know, there was an abusive relationship from the person who died. And you'd think they'd just be glad to be out of it. And they often are early on, if it's a a particularly nasty relationship. Mm. But then what you get is this unresolved stuff 
You know, there's never there's never a moment where the problem is resolved or the other person has to answer for it or um, or they get the answers that they never had. Yeah, yeah. Um, and funnily enough, those people often have more problems in the longer term. And we could say the same with a relationship. Sometimes, you know, a, a relationship's gone really well. People might grieve intensely, but the longer term damage may be more from relationships that were that were pretty bad as well as pretty good. Mm-hmm. Now, whether you include that all in grief or not, we come back to simply, you know, is it grief? Is it a, a kind of trauma? Well, that just gets back to being definitional on where we mm-hmm. choose to pace levels. People's experience is people's experience. Yeah, interesting. Really interesting to hear. And just makes me reflect a little on that, um, what you were saying about kind of being okay at the start and then um, like thinking that, that that's it and we're done. And I know we've, we've said this quite quite a lot, but that that feeling that maybe people can empathize with where you, you think you're on the right track and you've progressed through and you're feeling really good and then just all of a sudden something hits you and you just feel so low again and you, you're going over things and all that stuff just gets stirred up and you're like, what, where did that come from? I just, I can't believe it. I thought I was past this and, and, but I think I'm kind of laboring a point here, but I, but it's just interesting that you mentioned it again. And and, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, the thing is not, how do I stop that from happening? Mm. The thing is just remembering, yep, this is what happens. Right. This this is what it's like. Um, and, um, there's a, uh, you may well be uh, be aware of this. Uh, it, it's again, it comes this back to this thing I've said time and again. It's like the same stuff gets dis- discovered across history and across cultures. And there's a version of this in almost every culture. In, in mm. Western European culture, the most famous version of this is, I think, I think oh, awful if I'm wrong, uh, from a, a sort of a medieval sort of philosopher and priest called Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I think, uh, but it is also cropped up in lots of other contexts. Uh, uh, but this one, they say, um, the four words that will make a happy person sad and a sad person happy is, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. And I think in grief as well, it's really important to remember, this too will pass. Mm-hmm. This moment will pass. And if this is a bad moment, it will pass and there will be a better moment. And if this is a good moment, this will pass and there will be a worse moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the knowledge that that changes, but it doesn't mean you're stuck here forever. So there's, there's some, and I've heard this said a lot recently. Um, there's a, there, there's a kind of sort of model uh, that get that does around a lot. I see it on social media, and there's some brilliant truth in it. And there's a, a little bit of a kick in the tail. I think it's less helpful. But you know, if we expect the grief to shrink and go away, we'll be disappointed. So 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 the model is often like you've got to imagine like a stone in a glass jar. That, you know, that stone isn't going to shrink. We've got to somehow find a way of making the jar bigger. And there's a lot of truth in that. I think that's really helpful in lots of ways. And actually the stone does change over time. And right. most people's experience is like six years in, it's not exactly the same as it was six weeks in. Mm. So things do change, but they don't go away. It's back to this lifelong thing. And they're always a part of us. So, so, um, so another another like development that people talk about grief, which is I think really useful, is uh, goes by the name the continuing bonds theory. And actually, once you've named it that, you've kind of got the whole model because what they said is you know in those early models, it's like you're working towards letting go of the person. People used to talk about letting go of the person, mm. you know. And if you think of um, think of Top Gun, you know, obviously a key psychological reference point here. <laughs> you know, there's this moment at the end, and I hope there's no spoilers, if there's any of humanity who want to see it who haven't seen it, you know, where you know, a big part of it, our lead character is grieving intensely for a friend who's died. And um, and there's a scene at the end where he kind of throws his friend's dog tags into the sea, and that's him sort of letting go. And that's fine as a cathartic moment, as a, as a, as a nice shot of Tom Cruise, it's brilliant. But um, in terms of grief, we're not moving towards letting go. What we're moving towards is, and it's an American model, so it's phrased Americanly, but it's renegotiating the relationship. So this person who has been important to you will always be important to you. And they're not here now. Mm-hmm. So we need a different sort of relationship with them. But that relationship will always be a part of our life. They'll always be a part of your life. 
and they're still sort of in there and, and metaphorically we can say in your heart as well as your head but they're not gone uh, and that, I think that's a that's a really helpful way of looking at it I think so too I think that's very comforting kind of like we were saying before you were saying before about the the expectations and I think that kind of can maybe provide a bit of a release for people that are expecting to have to let go ah it's done with now no like you said these people will always be a, a part of us and whether that's the end of a relationship whether that's a death whatever it is they will always be yeah. there that's really comforting sure. I like it I like it. And that's entirely independent of people's individual spiritual beliefs. So for some people, yes. there is a belief there will be there will be another meeting. For some people, there isn't. What we're talking about here is something separate and that can be true no matter what your belief's about, whether it's an afterlife or not, is that in this life now, that per- whether or not we believe the person's, the essence of the person is still somehow exists out there, psychologically, we know they exist in here. Mm. because even when you're alive and you're with the person actually most of the time your relationship is with your mental representation of the person if they walk out of the room they don't just cease to exist for you you know what they would like what food they would they might choose what how they'd react to that politician being on tv you've run a little simulation in your head and here's the thing if that person dies in the early stages it may be you may be completely overwhelmed by the pain of the loss but that like, little simulation of the person is still there. And if you get to the stage where, as with some of the people I've supported, they're struggling saying, oh, I need to decide whether to move house, but I, you know, my husband was always so good at these decisions. Mm. And you say, well, what would he have said? You kind of like run the simulation. Mm. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with what you've said, but I bet you can work out what he would have said. And then you can choose whether you want to go with it or not. So that person can still be part of your life in really practical ways. You can, in your head, say, what should I do? Mm. And the chances are you'll be able to hear their answer. You don't have to go with it, but they can still, they, so it, they can be practically still part of your life as well. Yeah. It's like that, that idea of that some people, when they are comforting someone that is going through grief, that, well, what would they have wanted? They would have wanted you to get back out there. Maybe they would have wanted you to meet someone else. You you might imagine them in that yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, I want you to get out there and meet someone and, and keep busy and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it reminds me of that. I don't know if that's useful. Yeah, no, it's very similar. It's, it's, right. it's very similar. And sometimes in kind of, it, for the small push people who get really, really stuck and get into kind of grief therapy, we kind of sometimes will consciously do that. In therapy, it gets called the empty chair technique. You know, you have to oh. make sure there's a spare chair in your office and sort of try to say, if that person was here now. I wonder what you would, um, what, what might they say hearing us talk like this? What you just got to be slightly careful of with this is that it doesn't become another stick for the bereaved person to beat them with, that mm. they're now let, also letting down the person who died mm. by being in such a mess. So it's not a reason for not doing that, but we've just got to be a little bit alive that some of these very well-meant things can then end up piling kind of shame and guilt um we, we sometimes in, in palliative care and end of life care we do sort of like uh, memory boxes for kids and teachers know all about these kind of things and now and sometimes letters to the kid for later in their life so you can be a part of their life later on but the thing when i'm talking to people who are about to write these letters i always say just be a little bit careful you might with the very best of intents, you know, say, you know, I hope you have the most wonderful career. I know you love animals. I know you want to be a vet. I hope you become like the best vet ever. You think, well, hang on, what happens if, if they're reading it at 30 and life just hasn't let them do that? Are they now also letting their dead mother down? So we've just got to be a little bit careful with, with, with invoking this person mm. that we don't then just add to the reasons to, uh, to feel wretched about things. Yeah, no, that's a really important point to make and one that I didn't think about, but of course makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, interesting. It's just so complex, isn't it? <laughs> that's people for you, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right, so moving on. I mean, you you mentioned one of your books earlier. Um, so I'd like <laughs> to kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's fine. I'm, I'm going to put the, the links uh, to both of your books in the in the show Thank notes you. so people can can check them out definitely um, and, and i'll actually ask you also whether you could put a link to the um there's another book that's specifically about grief grief in uh teenagers oh, okay. uh, as a self-help book it's only recently published by um 
uh, by, by the person I mentioned earlier, set up Winston's Wish. Uh, and, and I think it's really good for a teaching audience. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a book worth knowing about. So I'll, I'll, I'll send you the links for that as well. Yeah, definitely. Sounds good. Brilliant. Thanks. Um, well, you, you've got to let me go back to your book so I can plug it a little bit. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, they're the most important thing. Yeah, of course. Um, but what I was hoping to move towards now, I guess, as we, we're starting to come towards the end of the conversation is, is I mean, I mean, you've already mentioned so many um, kind of approaches, I guess, that we could take to to coping. I don't know if that's the right word with grief. Um, but both your book, books focus on the use of CBT, mindfulness and acceptance, don't they, to deal with these these big life-changing events. So is there anything else you, you would add to this conversation around each yeah. of those approaches and what listeners can take away in each of those respects to to, yeah. to dealing with grief again i'm not sure dealing with grief is the right phrase but, please but isn't it interesting <laughs> that as soon as you start looking at it carefully it becomes harder to say mm. what it is and that's not like a failure on your part a failure on my part i think that's genuinely a recognition of the complexity that here is not an illness to be cured mm. it's not even a problem to be fixed you know it's a natural part of human life that people need support through yeah um so yeah, it's, well, and, and you're right. I mean, both books have subtitles that are basically almost the same, using CBT, mindfulness, and acceptance to blah 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 blah. blah. Um, and actually, for any any of your listeners who've ever been involved in publishing, um, the um, there's a very prosaic reason for that. It's that the uh, the publishers, the editors, if they know their job, and the people at Routledge really know their job, say, "We want your subtitle to have all the key search terms that people might put into a certain well-known books." Uh, uh, bookseller uh, so that's right all those are separately mentioned in the subtitle is to hit all the search terms on the on the uh, on the bookselling website that shall not be named yeah. um uh but that said yeah the cbt bit is because uh, i come for an approach um uh, uh called the, the psychological flexibility approach one form of which is called acceptance and commitment therapy people don't need to really worry about that but it's a it's a particular form of cognitive behavioral therapies so it's saying you know um really the stuff we're trying to deal with comes about because of the way that we learn to make sense of the world these are side effects of the way we make sense of the world so that's kind of why it's cbt um, it's a form of CBT, but it's one that's got acceptance as a big chunk of it. Not so much acceptance that, that this has happened or this is the external world, but acceptance of our internal experience. So acceptance that difficult thoughts will show up, acceptance that strong feelings will show up, Expect, acceptance that, you know, I know I sometimes see myself in this unhelpful way. And rather than getting into a fight with those things or particularly trying to reason our way out of them, it occasionally works, but more often just makes things worse. Um, making room for them. And, and grief's a great example of that. The, the key thing is making room for the grief while it does its stuff, rather than trying to take it on and fix it. So that's kind of, I guess, the acceptance bit. Where the mindfulness bit comes in is the, you know, it's not necessarily advocating sort of full-on eight-week mindfulness courses. You know, those could be really useful. And I've certainly sort of been involved in them and taught them. Uh, they can be they can be really useful, but that aspect of mindfulness, which is um, about getting better at noticing, yeah, uh, and noticing. Oh, look, here is pain. Here's here's a hard memory. Here's what's going on outside of me as well. This is what happens when I say this. So it's just about getting better at noticing stuff without it all being oriented around fixing, yeah, stuff. So those are the kind of the kind of approaches, and so being able to notice what's going on, allow it and make room for it, recognize that the feeling itself, as, as much as it hurts, the feeling itself isn't the problem. The problems typically come with some of the ways that we respond to them. So if we try and bottle it up all the time, if we try and um, squash it down, drink our way to oblivion. Um, constantly paced on the smile and say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Mm. Those are the things that get us into more trouble. Now, I've got to say, there will be little bits of time when we have to do those things. I'm not saying, you know, bottle of vodka bit, but the bit where sometimes you have to hold it together for a while. But one, I guess one of the other tips, if we're, if we're kind of thinking that way, is, um, you know, sometimes you will have a meeting, you know, say you have to have a meeting with your with your 
with your kid's head teacher about the fact that, you know, they're in bits because their grandfather's died. And you're grieving the loss of your father and you're feeling in bits. And, you know, we know that in the teaching profession, we know how kind of kind and supportive the vast majority of, of, of your colleagues will be. But it's a, still a difficult thing for people to do. Yeah. And they're going to want to hold it together. And it's learning that it's actually okay to try and hold it together. It's okay to bite the inside of your lip. It's okay to keep swallowing, to keep the tears back. Just don't do that all the time. Mm. And maybe later on and when your kids are in bed, you know, that's the time you just let it all happen. So if you're gonna if you're gonna have to sort of white knuckle it through a situation, afterwards just make sure there's room to let the feelings come. Because the more you strong feelings are like a beach ball, right? It's like trying to push a beach ball underwater. <laughs> the more you try and push it under, what's gonna happen? It yeah. gets harder and harder, and it's gonna come up and slap you in the face. So you've got to let it float sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess like yeah. That. I like that analogy. That. I've never heard that before. I like it. Oh right. Yeah, not original <laughs> I wouldn't have known but yeah <laughs> and so yeah that's great and that there's, there's lots of parallels with my conversation with Dr Joe Oliver um, when we talked about resilience and we talked about this oh you talked to Joe oh, yeah exactly he was he was brilliant um, and yeah. But yeah, that that healthy resilience, um, and I, yeah. and I during that conversation, I think I talked to him about wh- where is that balance between because yes, yeah, sometimes we do need to be that kind of more traditional view of the word resilience, where you do need to knuckle down and be disciplined mm. and, and get on with it. But that's that's not always going to work, isn't it? And you can't be like that all the time. That's not healthy. So I, I think that's reassuring again that um, idea that yeah, so, sometimes you do need to be strong and, and bite your lip and 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 crack on um, even when it's really tough, but not because because that's the way to doing something that really matters to you and is really important. Not right. because that removes the experience of distress. Yeah, or a way to punish yourself for like, yeah, you know. Yeah, don't be weak, don't be whatever. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Interesting. So, I mean, with mindfulness and acceptance, I mean, other than reading your book and, you know, you mentioned that there are, (laughs) there are, there are courses out there and I I don't know, is there, is there anything else that you might say about if, if someone's, you know, if we could say to someone, oh, well, you just need to get a bit better at acceptance and accepting these feelings when they come up. But obviously that's, that's really difficult to do, isn't it? So anything else that you, you, you could mention? Um, but I suppose the, the, the link between mindfulness and acceptance is, is massive, isn't it? That they, it, it, it is. It, and again, you know, obviously it's, it, but it's not that I'm always talking about this. It happens to come up several times. Yeah. <laughs> today you know kind of a, you know mindfulness as we are talking about it in sort of western healthcare and stuff obviously derives from it being an embedded part of philosophical religious systems mm. you know like, like buddhism early hinduism uh, and the bit that we tend to talk about in non-religious contexts here is an element of that you know it doesn't serve all of the ends of uh, of that but in the essence of learning to attempt to just notice stuff better and be non-reactive can be really useful um the same things that people might do for that might be used for other reasons as well though you know so you know people i've known people get very hooked on mindfulness type activities but actually all they're trying to do is suppress their feelings and they're trying to find a route through to feeling better and you know who could blame them and sometimes it just doesn't work yeah. Sometimes trying to feel better ends up with us feeling worse rather mm-hmm. than making me feel. So, some, so you, you're asking a practical question about how to do it, but a big part of it is just trying to encourage that mindset and encourage the bit that says it's okay to kind of fall apart a bit. It's okay for the pain to be present because the pain is part of the loving. Mm. pain is part of the price that you choose to pay for having loved that person now you might say it's crazy to say you're choosing who choose but you know um so, so like one of the metaphors sometimes uses if look you know somebody's lost somebody that they love and they're feeling terrible just terrible because of it you know one of the questions i'll ask is hypothetically like, if we had a time machine mm. and we could go back to the day before you met them and you walk the other way so you never knew them, 
you need. Know that they died and you will not feel this pain. Would you do that? And only once heard somebody say they, they, they'd walk the other way. And that was important information as well. Yeah. But actually, normally people are saying, I, I know this sounds, it's easy to sit here saying this, but people genuinely are effectively saying, I am willing to have this pain if that's the price of having loved this person. Mm. Back to Freud. And, <laughs> exactly. And getting them in touch with that. Yeah. And getting in touch with that itself is an act of love, actually. Mm. That one in a staff of pain. And when people kind of construe it more that way, the pain isn't become so much the enemy mm. that must be dealt with and must be suppressed. Yeah. Oof. Important, really important. Right. Mm. I've got one. Well, I have two questions that I always finish an episode with, but I've got oh, one more just prior to that. Um, I know we're creeping up on an hour here. Um, but the one question that maybe can be quite quick, I don't know. But it was a question that we um, that I got on Twitter when I said that I was going to be talking to someone um, about grief. And the question was about s- supporting other people with their grief. Um, and this person also gave the example of, well, what if that person really doesn't want to deal with their grief and they are yeah. completely um, just, yeah, just blocking it out and don't want to deal with it. Now, maybe that's, nice. a, question. that's a good question. It's a good question. Okay. Um, the, um, okay, so... Um, yeah, I said before, you know, probably talking to somebody like me is every every sentence will start with it depends. And, yeah. and, and part of that is actually the answer to this. It is actually context matters. Right. So you see somebody and they're not dealing with grief. What's the context? What's 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 your relationship to them? What's your role towards them? Because there's a huge difference. If this is, say, a colleague and you see them not dealing with their grief, you've got to ask yourself what's my role in this? Because, you know, you're not the therapist. Mm. You're not the rabbi. You're not their partner. But as a colleague and a friend, you might be an important part. So it might be that you gently at some point suggest, you know, it seems that this has hit you really hard. It seems it's not really shifting that much. You know, I'm wondering if there's anything that might help. You know, very gently, very, you know, be carefully. And it might be that actually you're not in a position to make that big shift other than to make that suggestion that those things are there. But don't underestimate what you bring by just staying in there with them and just being a calm, supportive presence ongoing. Because one of the experiences of people who are grieving is an and it sounds like one of those apocryphal things, but I've heard it so many times. People realize that people literally cross the road so as not to speak to them mm. because they're so worried that they're going to say the wrong thing and make that person more upset and make themselves upset. Yeah. So actually just being willing to stay in with that person and ask how they're doing and mean it rather than just be a social inquiry. You know, and, and particularly like the first time you see them after the bereavement, you know, name it. Um, in, in, I know in America they, 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 they have kind of quite a formula, well, to me, says formulate thing, I'm sorry for your loss. It, you know, in, within that culture, that may work really well. I, I think it here sounds a bit pat, uh, a bit, bit, little bit contrived to use those exact words. Personally, if you're in a position to do it, I would always, if you know the name of the person who died, I'd use their name. Right, as Terry yeah. Pratchett said, speak their name. So you know, I was so sorry to hear what uh, to hear about Dave. Right. And if you're not quite sure about the name, you think you might get it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm so sorry to hear about what happened. You know, how are you doing? And um, and and then allow them to steer. Yeah. You know, if actually you end up with a wet shoulder and then it's sort of telling you for half an hour you've performed a service, if they sort of give you a minimum so they're grateful for it and clearly want to move on allow them that as well but just kind of like stay in there and show that you're somebody who is willing to talk Mm. but don't take it as your responsibility to move them on yeah powerful again i think i think that's just so um useful to hear really really is and it just it makes a lot of sense i think to me you know just 
in other in other instances, I suppose, just being that friend that will just listen and not give advice, not say, well, I think you should do this or, or, or whatever it is, just to be there and just to listen. And I think that the point about the name, naming them is really interesting because maybe it would be kind of the, would be afraid to name them because then just by saying the name, it could open up a, um, a you know, an emotional roller coaster. But if, yeah. if it does, it does. Like you said, well, if, if that's what they need, then that's what they need at that time. And if they just the want to say it. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Right. Well, th- thank you so much, Ray. It's, um, Pleasure. I have, well, I'm not sure I enjoyed this conversation because it's been really <laughs> tricky at times. It's, it's such a difficult topic, but it's, um, an important topic and one that I really, really wanted to talk about. And you've definitely, um, you've kind of done it justice. I, I think, you know, I'm really, I'm really, really, um, grateful for you to, for making the time to come and chat to me about this. Um, well, thank I do you so much for asking me. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Um, to, Quite quick questions that I like to finish off with. Well, they don't have to be quick. It depends on depends on how you want to answer them, I suppose. But one of them is around <laughs> that I ask guests to to share their three tips to thrive. And this is just kind of a what what can listeners take away from this conversation about things that they can do every day or every week to to feel their best, to feel happy, and to feel healthy. Now, this doesn't have to be linked to grief. Um, oh, okay. Um, it could be anything you like, uh, but at the same time, because you've offered so much already, um, right, we, we, we can just leave it at that and I can go right to the last question. It's completely no, up no, to no, you. No, 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 no. I, I mean, I can give you a couple of just short ones that are grief, but not just grief. Yeah. Um, okay. So the first one would be notice what you've got. Hmm. Okay. There's, there, there, there is stuff that is in your life at the moment that one day won't be and you will miss it like hell. So notice that it's there and make the most of it being present. Mm. I would certainly say that one. Uh, second, link to that, know what matters to you and try and organise your life around moving towards that rather than simply moving away from pain. Mm. And, the, uh, and, and the third one would be show up, pay attention. Notice what's going on around you and within you. If you, if you nail those three, you've got it done. <laughs> <laughs> easy as that, easy as that. No, fantastic. And, and this is just uh, all the different types of people I speak to kind of, they all circle around the same uh, similar tips. If I talk to psychologists, if I talk yeah. to meditation experts and wh- whoever it is, it's talking <laughs> about values. It's talking about noticing. Yeah. It's talking about gratitude. Um, these things keep coming up and it means that they are things I'm working on hard. I'm really trying to keep them front and center every day and think, yeah, what, what can I do too. every day? Me too. <laughs> it's a work in progress though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and then my final question for you is yep. what's that one lesson that you wish you had been taught when you were a child? There are no bad feelings. We need to have them all at some times. We don't want them taking over. We don't want them being completely in control of us. But all of those bad feelings, feelings that we're told are bad, are important parts of our life. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. Right. Good. So grateful, Ray, for your time. Um, And I'm really looking forward to just staying in touch on social media and putting this episode out there. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks again, Sam. Thank you for tuning in to my conversation with Dr. Ray Owen. If you did find it useful, please consider sharing with friends, family and colleagues. You can also support the show by following this podcast wherever you're listening to it and also rating the episode as well. Thank you again and I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon.